Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. In this episode, the Iowa Democratic Party's reliance on a Democratic, establishment-connected political vendor results in vote-counting chaos. The House of Representatives prepares to affirm its loyalty to the will of organized labor, and San Francisco lefties fight over campaign finance disclosure. A dumpster fire. That's the only image that can appropriately describe the situation regarding the count in the Iowa Democratic Party presidential nominating caucuses as of recording time. Four days after Iowans assembled in school gyms, churches and religious buildings, and other public buildings to declare their preferences, the party still can't tell the public who won. And Democratic National Committee Chair Tom Perez has requested that the results be re-canvassed. First, let's step back. Unlike normal elections, whereby a voter votes privately, the votes are counted, and whoever gets the most votes wins— or in a proportional system like the Iowa delegate allocation, a formula is applied to the results to assign seats or delegates, Iowa Democrats voted publicly, were counted, could reassign their votes if their candidate failed to meet the threshold for precinct delegates, and then counted again. Confused? So were a lot of people. The New York Times' Nate Cohn argued in a Twitter thread that the DNC-ordered recanvas might not even help settle the issue of who won, because of errors made by precinct officials in conducting the caucus procedures. Of course, most of the headlines went to the web development vendor, portentously named Shadow Incorporated, that built the application precinct officials were supposed to use to report the caucus results. Because the application crashed on caucus night. Shadow is deeply linked to the acronym network of Democratic political and advocacy groups headed by digital consultant Tara McGowan, a rising star among Democratic operatives who announced a flashy $75 million campaign to unseat President Donald Trump and Republican legislators. And while McGowan has tried to distance acronym from Shadow, Shadow's CEO had previously described the firm as, quote, existing under the acronym umbrella, and records show acronym and Shadow shared a mailing address. Acronym has deep ties to the Democratic Party establishment and the Hillary Clinton campaign alumni network. McGowan herself worked for the Democratic establishment in Clinton-supporting super PAC, Priorities USA. It gets weirder. The Atlantic reported that McGowan's husband, a Clinton campaign alumnus, was working for Pete Buttigieg a presidential candidate. Acronym rose to prominence for sponsoring Career Newsroom, a network of ostensible news outlets that gave coverage favorable to liberal candidates backed by the network. The Daily Beast's Lachlan Markey identified even more entities in the acronym world, most prominently United Research Group, a Delaware corporation that conducted Facebook market research in states acronym has said it will target. Beyond the chaos of the vote tabulation and the factional warfare over the associations of the digital vendor, there's a broader lesson. The Iowa Democratic Party made changes to make their arcane contests, quote, more transparent and accessible to more voters. They failed. And how they failed has lessons for so-called electoral reform. When you try to rationalize a system that usually works and geographically contains the errors, you can cause an even greater dumpster fire. By the time you hear this, the U.S. House of Representatives will have voted on the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, or PRO Act, perhaps the most radical piece of legislation in recent memory. The bill is a wish list of major priorities for labor unions seeking to coerce more American workers into paying union dues. We have covered this legislation before, but it's worth spelling out in detail just how radical it is. Proving that the PRO Act is primarily about increasing the number of involuntary union dues payers, the PRO Act would override all state right-to-work laws in the private sector. Like California's controversial union-sponsored Assembly Bill 5, which wrecked the livelihoods of independent contractors and freelance journalists, the PRO Act would require more types of work to be done by unionizable formal employees, 
rather than independent entrepreneurs. PRO-ACT would repeal prohibitions on secondary boycotts, expanding unions' coercive power over the broader economy to levels not seen since the massive labor strife of 1945-46. And then there are all the other small favors, including codifying Obama-era labor board decisions that redefined joint employment to make franchise businesses easier to unionize, shortened the time frame for campaigning and unionization elections, and enabled union organizers to get employees' private personal contact information. It's also worth remembering why unions are pushing such a radical proposal. Private sector unionization fell to a recorded low of 6.2% this year. Do not expect unions to take their continued decline as an impetus to reform themselves or change their structure. Instead, expect them to work even harder to compel new workers to join their outdated enterprises using government force. And should big labor increase its power to compel employees to pay into its coffers, expect big labor's political and advocacy power in the service of full-spectrum liberalism, not just economic leftism, to increase. Unions don't just fund a broad network of left-progressive advocacy groups and hire left-progressive professional operatives. They also support litigation to, among other things, require conservative Christians to pay for employees' contraceptives and to bake custom cakes for same-sex wedding ceremonies. The PRO Act is ultimately about political power not worker rights. And in our final item, some unusual skirmishing in the politics of San Francisco. San Francisco political operatives with ties to the city's very left-wing political establishment have sued to overturn a local anti-dark money law that lowered the contribution threshold triggering in-advertisement donor disclosure from $10,000 to $5,000, arguing that the rule, quote, will crowd out the political messages campaigns are trying to convey through television, radio, print, and online ads. Supporting the suit is Maggie Murr, former campaign manager for San Francisco's very liberal mayor, London Breed. She argued the new rules, quote, render useless many communication tools, particularly those used by smaller, less well-funded campaigns. In a 15-second digital ad, the spoken and written disclaimers will cover the entire ad. In smaller newspaper ads, the disclaimer will fill the space of the entire ad, end quote, in a court filing supporting the suit. And the plaintiffs and their supporters are onto something. Not only do the disclosures crowd out speech, literally by taking up airtime and ad space, they can also chill it, especially in a city known for its radical demonstrations like San Francisco. Indeed, the arguments we discussed on the podcast last week in favor of the Citizens United decision applied just as well to San Francisco's rules. Not that we're holding our breath for liberals like the city's political establishment to realize that everyone, not just their friends, deserves full First Amendment protections. That's our show for this week. We encourage you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you next week.